do a topical series, but this is an important one. We are going to study the church. We're going to study from the Bible the doctrine of the church. Now, I know that sounds very, very heady, but it won't be, I don't think. I think it'll be very life-giving and refreshing to you if I can uh, present it in a way that will be pleasing to the Lord. And so pray for me as I attempt to do this. Let me begin by asking or saying this. If I were to ask you what you believe is the most precious thing to the heart of God outside of the Trinity, what would you say? What is the most precious thing to the heart of God outside of the three persons of the Trinity itself? What would you say? And some might say, what is most precious to God is the Bible. And since that indeed is the very word of God in written form, after all, no one would have the ability even to know God if it weren't for his revelation of himself in a book. Obviously, it's the Bible. Others will say, the most precious thing to the heart of God is humanity. God loves people more than anything because every human being is created in the image of God and therefore holds a unique standing as God's crowning achievement over all creation. Therefore, humanity must be God's most precious possession. Others, however, might say that what God loves more than anything is heaven. After all, this is the holy place in which he dwells, in a sense. It is the place where the angels of God redound his praises day and night without interruption. It's a place of peace. It's a place where no sin resides and where the three persons of the Trinity enjoy perfect, unspoiled fellowship and have for eternity. Obviously, the most precious thing to God is heaven. Well, of course, God does love his word infinitely more than any writing ever written by man. And surely, he loves humanity in a way that's higher than any part of his creation. And indeed, he must love heaven as the beautiful and eternal residence of everything that is holy. But as marvelous as all of these things are, to the heart of God, there is still one object of his affection that stands higher than the Bible, higher than humanity, higher than heaven, and higher than anything else in creation. In fact, it is the single most precious jewel of all the treasures of the universe. So precious is it, in fact, that God was willing to lay down his own life in order to obtain this most prized of possessions. What could possibly be that valuable? What could possibly be so precious? In a word, the church. God loves his church. Imperfect though we are, so often twisted, almost beyond recognition, God loves his church. And there was nothing that the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit loved more outside the very Godhead itself than the church of Jesus Christ. It is the crown jewel of the cosmos. It was especially cut to reflect and radiate the majestic light of the glory of God in a way that nothing else in creation can. The mountains and the seas... They display God's glory, but not as majestically as the church. 
without a doubt, every living thing on earth magnifies the glory of God. But nothing presents it with such clarity as the church. And this is why the church stands alone as the most precious possession of God. Now, it's ironic as we think about it that it seems that while the church is the most precious thing in the universe to God, many of the members of his church have a lower view of the church than he does. In our day, it seems the church is increasingly being treated by many as uh, many of those who profess to be members of this church as really little more than a kind of a religious club or a weekend diversion. In our day, very few people hold the church in the high esteem that it deserves. Perhaps this is owing in part to the fact that many pastors have shifted their focus away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ through the preaching of his word, through the leading of prayer, through dealing with sin and reaching the lost in favor of a model of ministry designed to appeal to the world in order to increase attendance. And such ministries speak to the felt needs of people. They offer therapy for the wounded, entertainment for the uninterested, and fun for the whole family. And while this may indeed work to draw larger crowds, it robs the church of her glory. You show me one church that is holy and unified, loves God's word, loves one another, and loves the lost. Though there be only 10 people in that church, it is infinitely more valuable than most of what is going on in America today that calls itself church. It's easy to raise a crowd, but only God can build a church. The church is the only institution that Jesus said he would build. You understand that? The church is the only thing that God said he would build among humanity. And not even death itself, not even Hades, the grave, can stop him from building his church. You know what that means? Go ahead and kill them. Kill my people. It'll only make them grow. There'll only be more of them. And today many will die. This Lord's day because they belong to Christ's church and are not ashamed to make his name glorious publicly. It's the glory of Christ. It's the glory of the church. And the glory of Christ is magnified most in the collective praises of his obedient, faithful, joyful people. In America, we've been taught that the church exists for the individual's personal happiness. We are told to accept Jesus as your personal savior. By the way, a phrase that's nowhere in the Bible. You never say, you never hear Jesus or the apostles telling anybody they should accept Jesus as their personal Savior. And we tell people, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. 
Because if you don't embrace the joy of knowing Christ, then there is no happy place for you. The closest thing to heaven that you'll ever have is what you experience now on earth. So eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow things are going to become infinitely worse. The message of the church is increasingly a message about people coming for personal blessing. And while it's certainly true that God loves every believer in a personal way, and every person's relationship with Jesus should indeed be intensely personal, and yet the glory of the church is the glory of a people, plural, whose affections and ambitions are not set on themselves, but on Christ. We teach people as we disciple and do counseling, and we always give them the first, the same first scripture to memorize. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, whether we are at home or absent, that is, whether we are on the earth alive or whether we are in heaven, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. If your ambition is to and pad a nice nest egg for yourself and get all the comforts and pleasures in this life that you can, you're living in the wrong direction. And if you're a Christian, you need to repent. That's not why you exist. You exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. That's why you're here. That's why the church is here. If you believe the church exists primarily to meet your needs, then you won't stay very long in, in any church. And so it's no wonder that people so frequently and casually move from one church to another, from one church to another. They never settle in. And usually the reason is, I understand if your job or you're in the military and you're being moved around the country or moved around the world. Obviously, that's God's plan for your life. But if you're living in the same house and you're jumping from church to church, there's a problem. There's a problem in the way you're thinking about church. Uh, whenever I talk about this, I always remember that cartoon that showed up in I don't know what periodical. And it was, it must have been some kind of Christian periodical. And there was a cartoon that was, uh, there was this guy on a deserted island. He's all by himself. He's all ragged. His clothes are all torn up. His hair is, you know, kind of crazy. And, and this boat comes up, and it's, it's a rescue boat. And the guys jump out of the boat, and they, they find this guy. And, they're, you know, he's rescued. He's saved after years of being on this island all by himself. There's nobody else there. And there's two structures uh, that can be seen in the distance. And so the rescuers ask the man, oh, what are, what's, what's that structure up on the hill? And he said, oh, that, that's my church. And they said, oh, well, that's great. What, what's that other one? He said, oh, that's my old church. <laughs> I think that's so fitting. We could be by ourselves and become disillusioned with the church. You know why? Because you can't even give yourself what you want. You're not going to get it from the people around you. Just get used to that. I mean, until you're in heaven, listen, you are not called to be served. Not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
If you believe the church exists primarily for you, you're not going to stay very long. Churches only function as they should when the truth of God's word inspires the heart toward joyful worship made complete by willful acts of personal sacrifice. Beloved, the Bible does not call you a seeker. It calls you a servant. No, no. It calls you a slave. We are slaves of Christ, and he is our glorious master. And that's what we see in the early church. This is the perspective they had when God transformed these selfish sinners into joyful worshipers. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning, but real quickly, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, because we need to read this text to kind of get us started. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to begin by verse uh, 43. Acts 2, 43, here's what we read. This was intuitive. This kind of service, giving of self, was intuitive to the early believers. Acts 2, we're picking up in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began, watch this, selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with them all as anyone might have need. Can you imagine? They're giving up their stuff because they love to serve one another. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Is it any wonder that that was the case? I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like this. And it was only going to get better. And here were all of these Jewish people and putting aside their differences and anything that would separate them. Even the Greek-speaking Jews were there because this was Pentecost. They had all come for the feast. And it was primarily the, the widows, the Greek-speaking widows. This was, this was ethnic and nationally motivated discrimination that was occurring. And yet, when Pentecost happened and it became clear that the one they had crucified was none other than the Christ, and he was still offering salvation to those who would repent and believe, they came to know Christ. Instead of keeping each other at a distance, setting up boundaries against one another, they sold what they had to make sure that those people were cared for. These were people who intuitively valued the church the way God does. It was precious to them beyond measure, and it became the epicenter of their lives. As their focus was turned away from themselves as individuals and onto a new body of people who all shared a common love for Christ, to them the church did not exist primarily to meet their personal needs. didn't exist to contribute to their individual comfort. To them, the church existed as a body of people who were mutually committed to worshiping Jesus together, whether by life or by death. Hence, we have Acts chapter 7, and Stephen, 
laying down his life as the first martyr of the church of Jesus Christ. It's become foreign thinking for us to think of ourselves primarily as members of Christ's church. We like to think of ourselves as individuals, and if you're part of the homeschool group, and we are, my family is too, if you homeschool your kids, then we got to be especially careful because there's this mentality of individualism. It's my family. My family is first. My family is first. And so, men, we leave work, we come home, and we cross the trench, we pull up the drawbridge, and we're home. And if everybody's feeling good on a Sunday morning, we might go to church. We've got to be careful of that. That kind of familial individualism, not even that is what Christ wants. The church became the epicenter of their lives. Consider this, how the Bible always presents the church in this plurality form. Here's just a classic example. Jesus told us to pray, not my Father, but what? Our Father who art in heaven. It was not give me my daily bread, but it was give what? Us our daily bread. It wasn't lead me not into temptation. It was what? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It was always us. It was always a plurality. It wasn't just me and Jesus doing our Lone Ranger thing. It was me and you and you and you and you. It was the body of Christ. It was the body of Christ. Beloved, if you were just to do a study, do a study in the New Testament of those classic passages that you have learned, like Romans 12, 1 and 2, and just look at the plural pronouns and ask yourself, is he talking to me as an individual in my relationship with Jesus, or is he really talking about the church? And we're going to spend significant time in Ephesians this morning because in the book of Ephesians, the golden thread that ties it all together is the church. The church. I mean, just think about chapter 5. You know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 18 times just in one chapter Paul speaks of the church, probably twice that many throughout the book. But it's become foreign for us to think of this way, to think of ourselves as a family made up of many imperfect members who overlook one another's faults, who forgive each other their offenses in order to collectively reflect the glory of Christ. And because such thinking is foreign to us, we don't value the church as we should. And we don't value it like God values the church. But perhaps if we stop to consider how much God loves the church, not just the individual person, but the church as a body, we take a significant step toward seeing the church as God sees it, loving it as God loves it, and being it the way God wants us to be. So, here's the question. How much does God love the church? How much does God love the church? Answer number one comes from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. 
And let's talk about God's love for the church in eternity past. God's love for the church in eternity past. Now, I'm not going to read that text yet. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. This whole book, as I said, contains this golden thread of the church, everything tied together on the church. And really, it is about how we, as people, relate to one another as members of this new thing called the church. So if you're in Ephesians, watch this. He explains the church in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then when he gets to the practical section, 4, 5, and 6, he's saying this. You are God's chosen people. You are the church. You are privileged beyond anything that you can possibly imagine. Now, live like it. Live like it. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk or live no longer as the Gentiles also live in the futility of their mind. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you. And by the way, that's plural. And gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You are the church. Now live like the church. You are privileged people. Now live like the privileged people that you are. So this text is amazing. The whole book is amazing. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, Paul explains that the New Testament church had since the beginning been what has been called the sacred secret, a mystery that God chose not to reveal until the appointed time. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, he says, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And so you see, there has always been a people of God. There's always been a people of God. Even in the Old Testament, even with apostate Israel, God had a remnant of faithful men and women who loved God and did their best to be obedient to God's law. They loved God from the heart. They would not worship Baal. But they knew nothing about God's plan for the future, to create a new kind of people, not Israel, but more than Israel. It was one that would be made up of both of Jews and Gentiles, together, Living together with one another, worshiping together, forgiving one another, having meals together. I mean, you cannot, as you're sitting here in a Gentile church, you just cannot imagine how radical this was. It was inconceivable for a Jewish person to have a meal with a Gentile. To go into their house was forbidden by law. This was too much. This was, this was amazing. This was astounding. This was earth-shattering. It was more than that. It was scandalous. You just can't imagine what kind of prejudice and racial conflict that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
And that's pretty much everybody else. If you're not a Jew this morning, you're a Gentile. And the Jews, the people, God's chosen people, weren't allowed to really do anything with you except business. And even that had to be guarded. Before Paul, no one was really able to comprehend the full meaning of God's promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christ, yes, but Christ in his church, all of the families of the earth. It was inconceivable to the Jewish people that someday all of the redeemed would come together as one body in which there would be absolutely no racial distinction no one would care whether you were black or white or Hispanic or Indian or Asian. Nobody would care whether you are Jew or Gentile. We would only care to the extent that seeing the various colors and nationality brought into our mind isn't God glorious. Look what he has done. Only God could create a humanity like this. Beloved, we're not called to be colorblind. We are called to rejoice in the manifold colors of the races that God has created from one man, all to the praise of his glory. And that from every nation, the gospel would bring forth followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in one church. This is what the church was about. This is why it was so radical. One of the reasons. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, to be specific, that the Gentiles or fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I tell you, it was unheard of. It was radical. And it was scandalous. It was scandalous. Even men like Peter and Barnabas stumbled on this point. Which is astounding if you think about it, because you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 10, when Peter is up on the roof taking a nap on a Sunday, he'd already done the Sabbath thing probably, so it's Sunday, and he's up on, on the roof, it's coming about noontime, and he has this vision, the Lord drops down a sheep, and it's full of these unclean animals, and he says, kill and eat, and Peter argues with him a little bit, finally gives up, because he's God, and a man comes, and he's a Gentile, and he says, I'm servant of Cornelius, and I've come to bring you to his house. And the Lord told him, go. Really? Into a Gentile's house? When you read that, if you don't understand the kind of tension that was happening between the Jews and the Gentiles, you'll miss the whole point. I mean, it took a sheep dropping out of heaven and the voice of God speaking to Peter directly to make him willing to go with these two Gentile men and enter a Gentile house where he would be fed Gentile food. And when he did, the Holy Spirit descended with power just like he had on the apostles. And Peter had no explanation. In fact, he went, he went to Jerusalem and he said, look, don't blame me. It was the Holy Spirit that did this. And he did it exactly like he did it with us. How can we deny them fellowship? Even though they're Gentiles. And so, in Galatia, the church of Antioch, under the ministry of Paul, was born. The unique thing about that church was it was the first Gentile church. And 
to the Jews, that was, to the Jewish Christians even, that's crazy. I mean, that's treason. You're talking treason. God is for the Jews. The gospel is for the Jews. We are God's people. Many more. It's for the Jews first, yes, but also to the Greeks, also to the Gentiles. And so this Gentile church was born. Now, what is the church of Jerusalem going to do? Well, Peter, you've got experience with this. Get up there, find out what Paul's doing. So he goes up and he visits this church in Antioch. Sure enough, it's Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit descends on them. Peter can't deny it. Paul can't deny it and doesn't want to. And so here are Jews, Paul and Peter, and they are fellowshipping and worshiping and eating with this group of Gentiles in Galatia. And then James sends some more men up. And now we have a problem. Because here's what happens. Some men from James, from the church in Jerusalem, come to Antioch. And as soon as they get there, Peter sees these guys coming and he separates himself from his Gentile brothers. And he refuses to eat with them. I'm a Jew. I'm with these guys. We we are God's chosen people. Let's not forget who's on top of the spiritual food chain here. (laughs) And here's what happened. Paul was livid. Galatians chapter 2. Just flip back two pages to the left in your Bible. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Here's what Paul says. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to the face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, He began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. You see what's going on? The gospel, yes, is to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. The church will be made up of Jews and Gentiles. This is the message Paul was preaching in large part because not only the revelation that came to Paul, but what he knew happened with Peter in Cornelius' house. And now Peter was holding himself aloof. And he was inadvertently saying, there is a distinction between Jew and Gentile. The gospel is for the Jews. We're not eating with you. We're not fellowshipping with you. And Paul said, don't you understand? You are causing confusion about the gospel. We are the church. We are not a racially segregated group anymore. We have come to Christ, and in Christ there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. We are one in Christ in the church. That's what the issue was. The truth was that by God's incomparable grace, verse 5, The Gentiles, people like you and me, are now fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Christ. This is the great mystery of the church. In fact, not only did God plan to bring together these two racially segregated groups of the world into one body, but he also chose every individual. He chose, listen to this, he chose every individual from those groups who would be included 
in this body, every individual. Now that's an amazing thought, that God planned from eternity past that you and I, in particular, will be included in this amazing body of people called the church. God chose you. God elected you. In fact, as Paul pondered and savored the beauty of these truths, it's as if he, as if he broke out in song over the wonder of all that God had done. Verses 3 through 14. This is Ephesians 1. Verses 3 through 14. That's a long passage. Look at that. 3 through 14. It takes up the better part of the page. 3 through 14. Guess what? It's one sentence. You think I tend to go on? <laughs> it was one sentence. Listen, it is the longest sentence in the Bible. It's 200 Greek words long. You think Paul is excited? I, I have no time for periods and, and punctuation. As he thinks about what God had done in the crea in creation of the church, his mind goes from glory to glory, from wonder to wonder, from delight to delight. In one song, as it were, he includes all the cardinal doctrines of the church, including election, sanctification, redemption, glorification, and on and on he goes without hardly even taking a breath. And all the way through, Paul seems intoxicated by the desire to magnify the glory of God. And so he says, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Everything moving toward the glory of God in the church. It's a glorious thing. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see and hearts that understand how glorious a thing it is to be a part of Christ's church. You get the distinct impression as you read this that Paul knows something that we don't know. But we should because it's right here. It's right here. It all starts in eternity past. It all started in eternity past. Now, that was all introduction. Let's look at the text. Verse 3, Ephesians 1. Are you ready for this? I hope I've set the stage properly so that you'll understand just by reading. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed, who? Us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You sang, all, all I have is Christ. I would only make one adjustment to that song. All we have is Christ. Just as he chose us in him before, watch this, before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. 
What a text. Where did the church begin? I've got to tell you, it wasn't some afterthought of God. It wasn't some kind of contingency plan that God came up with when he, when he realized how sinful man was actually going to be, and, oh, no, we need to have a plan B. How do we salvage whatever we can? No, no. Uh, this, this, this blows the circuits of my capacity to understand theology. That God came up with this plan not as a contingency after the fact. No, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? Before Adam sinned, God planned the church. God planned for a body of forgiven people who would praise the Son who died in their place from before the foundation of the world. In other words, before there was earth, before there was a sea or a mountain or a single plant or tree, before the first man was formed from the dust of the ground or had any opportunity to rebel against his creator, God personally chose, literally called out, elected us for himself. And beloved, don't, get your, don't allow yourself right now to get bogged down in all the issues of sovereign grace versus free will. There's a place for that discussion. It's an important one. But let's just let the text speak. Let's let God speak for a moment. For just this moment, let yourself savor the fact that if you know Jesus Christ today, it is because God personally chose you to belong to him. This is adoption. This is the glory of adoption. Listen, there are, there are some who will say, here's what God did. God, from eternity past, looked down through the corridors of time to see who would be favorable to accepting the Lord Jesus, and he chose them. Horse feathers. Balderdash. That's nonsense. That's not just unbiblical. It's nonsense. You want a better picture of what God did? Today, in Ukraine, a husband and wife from Calvary Bible Church are there for the first time in their lives. They're there for a specific purpose. They're there to do one thing. They're there to adopt a little girl. They're not there to pick through a thousand little girls to adopt. They knew who this little girl was before they ever went. They've seen her picture. They knew her name. And you know what else they knew about her? She has Down syndrome. They chose her. You think about what God did for you. You say, how could God have chosen me? Look at my sin. Are you kidding that's the glory of it. It's the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel. It's the glory of the church that before Christ ever came, he chose you. Knowing that your condition was far worse 
and having a problem with your chromosomes. No, no, no. You had something far, far worse. You had a wicked, sinful, rebellious heart. And he knew that it was going to express itself in a thousand different rebellions against him. And he did it anyway. That's adoption. That's how the church began. God picked you out of a group of a billion people and adopted you into his family before even one of us was created. In fact, God went so far to write your name in a book as the Reeves, I'm sure, have written in their journal. You've seen it on their blog long before they went. This is our daughter. We just have to go and redeem her. Pay the price, whatever it costs, to get her here. She is ours, though we have never laid eyes on her. God wrote your name in his book. Your name is engraved on his hand. Revelation 17, 8 speaks of those whose name had not been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world, before God created anything, he set his affection on you. And Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you. To Timothy, Paul speaks of the electing God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. It was always in the mind of God. How long is always? How long is God? Oh, beloved, let this truth sink into your soul. Let your heart be refreshed by this revelation. God loved you before you were born, before your parents were born, before your great, 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 great grandparents were born, before Adam was made from the dust of the ground. In the end of verse 4, here in Ephesians 1, says this, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Who is this person? Him who, to the praise of his glorious grace, freely bestows all thus, uh, this on us in the beloved. This is God. This is the lover of your soul. This is the one who created the church and chose by the, only the inner workings of his own soul that you would be a part of it. So how do we know that the church is the most precious thing in all creation to the heart of God? We know it because he was already pouring out his love upon his people before one of them was made. He secured every single individual whom he would adopt into his forever family to such a degree that Jesus was able to say in John 6, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. 
And again in John 10, 29, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Once he has you, you are in an irrevocable trust. There's nothing anyone can do to reclaim you from the Father's hand. You are secure. And how much does God love these people who are his church? He, he loves them as much as he loves his only begotten Son. Jesus prayed to the Father that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How much does God love you? How much does he love Christ? How much does the first person of the Trinity love the second? So much he loves you. Now that would be enough to sing about for eternity, wouldn't it? But Paul goes on. He moves from God's love for the church in eternity past to his love for the church in the present. Watch this, verses 6 through 11. God's love for the church in the present. Verse 6 says, and we've already read that one, but here it is, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, that's in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Why did God choose to adopt us before any of us had done anything right or wrong? Answer? In order to magnify the glory of his grace. In order to glorify himself. So that no man will boast, Ephesians 2 will say, so that the surpassing value would be of God. The glory would be of God and of no man. Grace, which he has freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now you may see the word beloved here and ask, who's the beloved? It's not you. It's Jesus. The one that God loves more than any person in the world. Through him, God poured out his grace upon us, and he did it by means of a purchase. No adoption is free. Someone has to pay. That's what redemption means. Ex agorazo, from the auction block. Redeemed, purchased, paid for. You see the adoption proceedings didn't come without cost, not even for God. If God would have us, the law said that he must purchase us and our redemption would not be cheap. How much would it cost for us to be purchased? 
it would cost the life of the one whom the Father called the beloved. Now think about this. In order to purchase the most valuable thing in the universe outside the Trinity, God would have to sacrifice one he loved within the Trinity. It was the only way. It was the only way. It was the highest price conceivable in the life of his only begotten son. You say, well, that, doesn't that demonstrate how valuable we are? No, you're missing the point. It demonstrates how infinitely gracious God is. And so by the blood of Christ, our trans transgressions are forgiven. This is not cheap grace. This is priceless grace. Lavished on us. The way Mary, you remember, lavished her costly perfume on Jesus, though it was worth a year's wages. And there's so much more here. There's so much more. But not only did God love the church in eternity past, not only does he love the church in the present, he loves the church in eternity future as well. Watch this, verses 12 through 14. To the end that we who were to the hope of Christ, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Not only has God chosen us from before the foundation of the world and redeemed us through the precious blood of his son, he also demonstrates his love for the church by promising an inheritance. An inheritance. Again, we come back to how much does God love you? He loves you as much as he loves his son. And what does he plan on giving his son? Everything he owns. And we are co-heirs with Christ that means we inherit everything that Christ inherits. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. And so you see, after responding to the gospel in faith, God sealed us in Christ by giving us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our inheritance. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never received an inheritance. I hope maybe someday some rich uncle who doesn't exist will... <laughs> maybe mistakenly give me an inheritance. But the way this often happens is if there is a wealthy father, and according to the tax laws of the day, they can actually give pretty significant chunks of money before they die to their children. And every time they do, they are tacitly saying, this is my gift to you, but there's so much more to come. Let this gift tease you with the thought that there is so much more to come. That's why God gives us a spirit. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? Think of the work that the Holy Spirit does in your heart and know it's just a down payment. That Holy Spirit who brought you to a place where you were willing to see your sin, to repent of it, to embrace Christ, 
that, whole, that same spirit that empowers you to minister, that fills your soul when you're with the body of Christ singing God's praises, that same Holy Spirit that brings about reconciliation between people who otherwise it'd be impossible to reconcile, that same Holy Spirit, you will experience what that down payment signifies in its complete fullness in heaven. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more disunity. There'll be no more need for spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit is merely a down payment on what God intends to give us on that day. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit is a mark. It's an identifying factor in our lives. In Paul's day, a seal was a mark of identification that was placed on a letter or a contract or some other important document to identify the person to whom the document belonged. You are the document. You have been sealed. And the seal indicates you belong to God. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life indicates you belong to God. God's mark is on your life indicating that you belong to him and that everything that belongs to him is yours. Not only that, but the Spirit is kind of an... He's kind of what the Old Testament would call the first fruits. It's a sampling of the quality of the harvest to come. I mean, you think what you get from God is good now? <laughs> you haven't got anything yet. It will be good beyond our ability to comprehend, but the delight will be eternal. And you, you know who gets this? The church. Only those who belong to the church. Only those who are in Christ. In Christ. Just here's a homework assignment today. Take Ephesians chapter 1 and highlight every usage of this two words in Christ. In Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. If you are in Christ, all of this is yours. If you are in Christ, you are his body, the church. And you are of all men the most privileged of God. And so how should we conclude? Well, all of these things and more God has lavished on the church because he loves the church more than anything in the universe outside of himself. That's what we need to know. And what I want you to see over the next few weeks of looking at these things is that the church that God loves is not just a bunch of random, unorganized, maverick free spirits running loose all over the place in their own private relationship with God. That's not the church. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Rather, the church God loves is a body of people whose great joy is to live together, serve together, helping each other deal with sin, encouraging one another in worship and obedience. It is a church that is organized under the God-ordained shepherds that are entrusted with feeding the flock, leading the flock, protecting the flock. It's a church where every person is uniquely gifted by the Spirit to give it an ability to minister to the other members of the body that no one else can. 
It's a place where the Bible is the truth that guides us, where love is the glue that binds us, where submission to one another is our joy, and where commitment to each other is for us unhindered by petty differences. Only God can do that. Only God can bring Jew and Greek together in reconciliation. And only God can unify the likes of you and me. And he does to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, beloved, the one thing that God loves in the universe, the thing that he loves more than anything that he has created, the thing that he has set his affection on most outside of the Trinity is the church. God loves the church. It is infinitely precious to God. And it should be precious to us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our view of the church is less than it should be. We've seen the abuses over the years of sinful men who have claimed to be servants of yours. There's failing and there's sin. And perhaps there's a little bit of self-righteousness on our part that makes us interpret that wrongly. Nevertheless, so many of us have adopted a sinful view of the church as if it were nothing but one of many options for believers to engage in. Oh, Father, change us. Change our perspective. Help us to see how precious your church is. Not just this local body, but every local body that truly is yours and belongs to Christ. Oh, Father, be glorified in the changes that must take place in our lives and will by the power of your Spirit. We give you praise.